Let me invite you to have your Bible open in Philippians chapter 4. As we look at verses 4 to 7, and as Paul brings to our attention in these verses four glorious graces which come to the life of the Christian believer. What are these four? They're not the only four, there are many others, but here are four that Paul brings to our attention here. Rejoicing, gentleness, prayerfulness, and peace. Four wonderful graces which are the realm of the Christian believer alone in all of their fullness. Rejoicing, gentleness, prayerfulness, and peace. What Paul is exhorting here is in many ways the heart and soul of Christian life and experience. There are, there are other things that we could include, but really here is the heart and soul of Christian life and experience. When you pause to consider these four things that Paul brings to our attention and we contrast them to those kinds of things which regularly appear in the, in the news headlines in the world in which we live, it soon becomes obvious that these four things are in short supply in the world today. People might know them in some small degree and in some temporary measure, but to know these in all of their fullness and to have these things as your ongoing daily experience, part of your life, these things are only the realm of the Christian believer. And these things confront the godless world in which we live because these are the constant ongoing state and experience of the Christian. And they are so regardless of whether you've just had a good day or a bad day. They are so regardless of whether your team's just put in five against Man United or they've just thrashed you. Those things don't matter when it comes to these graces. Or whether your boss at work just seems to have had it in for you all week long. And even through to those really dark and difficult valleys that God sometimes requires us to walk through. Even through the valleys of terminal illness and death, these are four graces which hold firm in the life of the Christian. What, even in the valley of death? Rejoicing? Yes. Gentleness and graciousness? Yes. Prayerfulness? Oh, yes. Peace? Peace. You see, even when life does its worst to us, even there, the Lord's people can know rejoicing instead of anger. The Lord's people can demonstrate grace rather than bitterness. The Lord's people can turn to heartfelt prayerfulness instead of just ranting at God and blaming him for everything that's gone wrong. And peace, even in the midst of the utmost turmoil and distress, even there. The Christian's heart can be at peace. 
you've just sung the words, that perfect peace and rest that is found in Christ. And if you don't believe it, why did you sing it? This is the heart and soul of Christian life and experience. And as people observe you week by week, as you go about all your daily living, it's okay to talk about these things here. It's easy to talk about these things here. But out there, as you're walking, walking and talking week by week, as colleagues rub shoulders with you in your workplace, as that same shop assistant chats to you several times each week, as the other students who you live with take notice of your habits and your language and your routines and your demeanour with them, as mums at the school gates share with you all their typical struggles in coping with family life and juggling all their commitments and responsibilities, as the children of Christian parents take note in intricate detail of every action and attitude that you display in front of them and hear every word that comes from your lips. Even sometimes listening to you as you influence them with critical opinions about other members of the church and don't tell me that never happens. Here are things that ought to be stand-out features in the life of every Christian. Here are things that really should stand out above all of these other things. Things that rise above everything else and really have an impact on people. Things that really make an impact on other believers and on the world in which we live. Joyfulness. And gentleness, or we might use the word graciousness, that is maybe actually a slightly better translation, gentleness or graciousness in the life of a Christian. So even at the end of the service, and then in your cars as you're driving home, will these be the key features of your conversation? Joyfulness and gentleness and graciousness? Are these the vibes that your children are constantly picking up from you? And from all of us when they're here with us in church? Joyfulness and gentleness and graciousness? And how is it that these outward graces may be seen in us? Because these things are hard to keep up, aren't they? Well, a significant part of the answer to that question is that these are evident in the Christian who is prayerful. They're evident in the Christian who is prayerful and they're evident in the Christian who has peace and rest in their own soul. When you found, truly found that rest in Christ for yourself, joyfulness and gentleness are the obvious outflowing of those things. Well, let's dig a little deeper into these things because these graces spring from an inner communion with God and in finding real contentment and satisfaction in God. So let's dig a little bit deeper into these four graces that are mentioned in these verses. The first is in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord continually. There should always be an air of rejoicing in the Christian, regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in. Now, of course, always being joyful, and being joyful continually does not mean 
uh, out of place hilarity. It's not about jumping up and down with glee at the most inappropriate time. This is a rejoicing that doesn't require you to be jumping up and down and effervescent 24 hours a day. You'll be very glad to know. That's not what he means by rejoicing. This is a rejoicing at the same time which doesn't prevent you from weeping with those who are weeping. The two do not contradict each other. And there is no conflict in the Christian who is, has this spirit of continual rejoicing and yet is able to come alongside those who are weeping and weep with them. You don't have to lay aside your joy in order to be able to weep with those who weep. Because this joy is there always. Because you see, this joy is not the same as merriment and laughter. For the most part, that's all the world has. Uh, that's why the other week when we got delayed coming to the prayer meeting was because there was a huge queue of traffic going to the arena to listen to a comedian. Why? Because they were desperate for some merriment and laughter. And I suppose for a couple of hours they found it. And maybe for the next few days, every now and again, they thought about that one particular joke that really did make them laugh, and they had a little chuckle. But it was very brief, and it was very fleeting, and it didn't really last very long. This joy is not the same as merriment and laughter. Now, it can show itself sometimes in merriment and laughter, but it's something that runs far deeper than that. And there's a very big clue in the phrase, rejoice in the Lord, there's a very big clue in the phrase as to where and how this joy may be found. Of course, the exhortation in verse 6, to be anxious for nothing, which we'll get to shortly, sits very well alongside the exhortation to be constantly rejoicing. Don't be anxious, be rejoicing. And that should be a big feature in the life of every Christian. It's not easy to rejoice when you're all wrapped up in anxiety. But the Christian's joy and rejoicing is instead being wrapped up in Christ. That's at the very heart of it. This is a joy and rejoicing in the Lord. What, what is this joy that the Christian has really all about? Well, to answer it quite simply, I want to quote from two hymns that we sing. Because this really gets to the heart of it all. Listen to these words. You'll know them. I'm not going to sing them, you'd be glad to know, but listen to the words. Come now, the whole of me, eyes, ears and voice, join me, creation all, with joyful noise. Praise him who broke the chain holding me in sin's domain and set me free again sing and rejoice Christ has set me free that's the heart of your rejoicing and when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die I scarce can take it in that on the cross 
my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art then sings my soul do you know that isn't that your joy isn't that at the very heart of your rejoicing doesn't that keep you in a state of continual joy in the Lord to know that that is what Christ has done for you and where you now stand in him there lies the Christian joy that which has been established by Christ in you and for you that which is eternal that which is secure and true that which does not change with your circumstances, that which God has done and will do, that which God, God has begun and God will finish, that which God is using in your life to cause you to do away with your sin and to cling ever more to Christ, that which God brings into your life to cause you to pursue holiness and godliness and to love and trust him more. And you rejoice. If you will permit God in Christ to have his rightful place in your life and if you permit all that the scriptures teach about the unfolding of God's sovereign will and purposes in the world, if you allow these things to be the lens through which you view the world, if you'll have the eyes to see what God is doing in you and in others, as he continues to bring people to faith, you'll have all of those things as a constant check in your thinking and in your outlook and in your perspective. And you'll always have something to rejoice over. Always. There will be no situation that you find yourself in. And there's nothing to rejoice over. You see, when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. It's not just a nice sounding phrase to make you feel good on the inside. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, it isn't a spiritual pipe dream. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, it isn't just rhetoric to make you sound super spiritual. When Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, I've got some news for you. He actually meant it. He actually meant it. Because as a Christian you can. If you are truly in the Lord, you will never be without something to rejoice over. Never. Even in the darkest place in this world. 
you will have that in which you can rejoice. Because you have Christ. Nothing can take him from you. That's not to say that your rejoicing will never be mingled with other emotions. You'll know fears. You'll know troubles. You'll know griefs and you'll know sorrows. But they will never be able to rob you of your joy. If you're in the Lord, there is no experience or circumstance that can take that joy away. And even though these other things sometimes will flood over us, they will not overwhelm you. Because the joy of the Lord will sustain you and keep you. If you are in the Lord. So here's this first wonderful, glorious grace that God brings to the life of the Christian, always rejoicing. Because there's always something to rejoice in if you're in Christ. And the second thing is gentleness, or we might call it graciousness. A gentle, gracious spirit is brought to the Christian believer. People should find it soothing to be in your company. You're not someone who grates and irritates and jars against people. You have no sharp edges about you that dig into people and cut people up. A gentle, gracious spirit. They see in you kindness and fairness and integrity. And these things should particularly mark you out in the world in which we live, which is in very short supply in these things. And at the same time, although we're called to a spirit of gentleness and graciousness, those kinds of qualities don't mean that you have to go soft in areas where a believer must remain firm and resolute. So being gracious and gentle doesn't mean that you're always compromising. Not at all. We certainly are never going to compromise on truth. We take as firm a stand as ever on truth and biblical truth. Now, of course, it's true. If in conversation with people who are not believers, you start to get down to the nuts and bolts of what you believe as a Christian and the doctrines that you hold to because they're taught in the word of God, there will be many things that you believe to be the truth that they totally disagree with and they may even contest them quite hotly with you. But you see, it's possible for the Christian to apply something which will act a little bit like the lubricant of oil in an engine. Why do you need to keep the engine well oiled? Well, it reduces friction and it reduces heat and it reduces damage being caused in the midst of all that friction and heat. And the Christian has about them something that they can pour into such circumstances so that the friction and the heat and the damage is greatly, greatly reduced. And that thing that the Christian has is called grace. A gentle, gracious, loving, kind spirit. 
You see, if these people are constantly experiencing from you gentleness and graciousness and patience and long-suffering, and you're not the person who's always looking for tit-for-tat retaliation, you're not the person who holds grudges, you're not the person who withdraws help from people because they did something that you don't like. You're not that kind of mean-spirited person. With you, there's no getting even. You just exude, because you are in Christ, you just exude this gentleness and this graciousness of spirit and soul. I'll give you a couple of examples. I've, I've mentioned these before, but I'll mention them again. Um, even Charles Spurgeon could make mistakes, you know. Sometimes you hear people talking about Charles Spurgeon like he was sinless. Well, he wasn't. And there was an occasion when it was told of Charles Spurgeon that another minister in London had criticised the work of their children's orphanages, which wasn't true, he hadn't. The following Sunday, Spurgeon stood up in his pulpit and criticised this other minister because of what he'd been told he said. And such was Spurgeon's ministry back then that everything Spurgeon said in his pulpit got recorded in the daily newspapers the following day. Such was the status of the man. And this great argument appeared in the press. And it became... Everyone was waiting for it to be a little bit like a tennis match between Spurgeon. Oh, right, Spurgeon says this. Oh, what's he going to say? Oh, what? And people were ready for this great big ding-dong between these two preachers in London. So many people the following Sunday all flocked to this other man's church to see what he was going to say. And he didn't say anything. He stood up. So we're going to take a collection this morning. It's going to be a love offering. And all the money is going to go to Mr. Spurgeon's orphanage. They had to empty the collection plate three times over. The following evening, that other minister had a knock on his door. It was Charles Spurgeon. You showed grace to me. You didn't give me what I deserved. And you gave me what I needed. You showed grace to me. That's the Christian life. In every circumstance. And here's another. The Reverend Ian Paisley, whose public persona as portrayed by the media does not immediately make you think of a man who was gentle. But he was once approached by a Roman Catholic nun in his church at the end of one of his services. And he started to speak with her. And just a short distance away was the wife of one of his church elders, who was just gently listening in. And this is what she later said. I have never heard any man speak to any woman with such kindness and tenderness. Graciousness 
gentleness flows out of those who are in Christ. Now, it's not easy. And actually, it's not natural. But remember this, says Paul, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. If you are a Christian, the Lord is near you. He's your constant companion. He's your constant observer. He's your constant help, your constant strength, your constant wisdom, your constant comfort, and he is the very source of your life and light. The Lord is at hand. You're not alone in this. In Christ you can do it, says Paul. Without reservation, let your gentleness be known to all men, even those who don't deserve it. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, even your enemies, even those who persecute you, show them love and gentleness and grace. Because you didn't deserve it. But Christ is gentle and gracious with you. The third thing is prayerfulness. This is a slightly shorter point than the others. Prayerfulness. Now prayer is put to us in verse 6 as the antidote to being anxious. Prayer is the antidote to being anxious. As long as prayer is not just a big long list of what you want God to do for you. Which for some people that's all prayer is. It's just a big long list of what you want God to do for you. But if you remember what Jesus taught us in that prayer that we today call the Lord's Prayer, there are a number of very important aspects to prayer which come before asking God for what we need. There's acknowledging God in reverence and worship and praise and giving him his rightful place in prayer. There's placing before anything else a desire for the establishing of God's kingdom and that God's will might be done more than anything else. And it's to come with thanksgiving. Because you'll want to thank him at the very least for all the things that you're continually rejoicing over, won't you? See how these things go together? And then, then you can let your requests be made known to God. With everything in its proper place in your mind and in your heart and in your soul. When you're communing with God in the way that he has revealed is best for you, not in the method that you've invented for yourself, communing with God as he says he should be communed with, that's important, then you'll discover that Paul's command not to be anxious isn't as far-fetched as it might seem. Because Christian prayer really is the antidote to being anxious. Now, it doesn't stop us from experiencing those things which tend to take us towards being anxious. But when that happens, you can take it to the Lord so that those things don't overwhelm you. And the anxiety subsides. And you receive the promise of verse 7. Now, notice that what is said in verse 7 is conditional on verse 6 and the peace of God. Verse 7 is conditional on verse 6. Learn to pray. And learn to pray the way Jesus taught you to pray. And learn to pray along the, the lines that the Bible instructs you to pray. And this is what you can be assured of in verse 7. 
the peace of God. The peace of God. And this is a glorious thing. It's God's peace. This is not you trying to make yourself peaceful. Because there'll be circumstances where you'll never achieve that. You know that's the case. This is a peace which comes from God. It comes as a gift in exactly the same way as God comes to you with the gift of faith that you might trust in Christ. God brings you, he promises to bring you this gift of peace which comes from him. It's something you don't have in yourself. It's something you cannot generate within yourself. You need God to bring it to you and the promises he will. It's a peace which the Christian finds only in the Lord. It's a peace which defies any other rational explanation. How can you possibly be at peace on this issue? Others will say. It's because of God. I have no other answer. I have no other explanation. This is the goodness and kindness of God in me. That he's given me this peace. It's the kind of peace that Paul had as a prisoner in chains. It's the kind of peace that the the martyrs knew as they went to their deaths. Do you remember the words of Latimer and Ridley at the stake? Be of good cheer. Man, you're about to be burned to death. Be of good cheer. Why? Because his heart was at peace with God. This is real stuff. It's not a peace that you can generate within yourself. It's the work of God in your heart and in your mind. It's a work which settles the emotions within you, stops your mind from running away with itself and assures you that in Christ it is well in your soul. Not that there won't be times and moments when for a while Your emotions may get the better of you, just for a time. They did with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't they? He was overwhelmed with his emotions for a short time. What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. And the peace of God followed. It's the pattern Christ himself has set for us. In that place of utter, utter turmoil and despair, he cried out to his heavenly father. And God gave him peace. Not my will, but your will be done. And his heart became settled. You see, as Christians... God doesn't inject spiritual Botox into your heart and mind so that you become numbed to all other emotions. That doesn't happen. We're still flesh and blood. We still react. We still respond. But we have this underlying rock and foundation in our lives, which is Christ and all that he brings to us. God will bring you his peace. God will return you to peace in the midst of turmoil. That's the promise of the scriptures. And he does it through Christ. Through Christ Jesus. There's no other way God does it but through Christ. And it's all those same things we spoke about from those two hymns earlier. Those things which are the cause of your rejoicing. They are the things that will bring your soul to rest and to peace. 
The things of Christ which we rejoice in. Now, there are many people in the world and they have their lives dictated to by their feelings and their emotions. You ask someone how their day has gone and then you regret asking as it just all floods out. They offload on you. If only you knew what kind of day I've had. If only you knew how many things have gone wrong today. If only you knew what my boss has been like and how he's treated me and all the things he said. If only you knew. Maybe you can rejoice, but I can't. Maybe you can be gentle, but I'm livid. Peace after a day like I've just had. Spoken to people like that? You've been that person? We've all been there. We've all been there. But you see, there is a promise which is anchored firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a promise. A peace which God will bring. A peace which doesn't make any sense other than it being the kind and gracious outworking of God in your life. And a peace which is able to overcome all other things that you have to face. A peace which has no explanation other than this is God in all his goodness at work in me. It's a peace which will encamp around your heart. It's a peace which will encamp around your mind and it will overthrow and overrule all your own natural tendencies to be, in, to be anxious and to be in turmoil. Be anxious for nothing. Take it all to the Lord in prayer. And pray as you ought to pray. And the peace of God will flow. So you have to get yourself alone with God. You have to turn again to Christ. You have to diligently seek him with all your heart. You meditate upon him. You meditate upon all that he has accomplished for you. You think about yourself as that rebellious, undeserving sinner. And you say, when I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away all my sin. But then sings my soul. And when Christ will come with that shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. And then I will bow in humble adoration and there I will proclaim for all eternity, my God, how great thou art. And when you take yourself aside and you allow yourself to focus again on Christ and look at all that you have in Christ and everything that is secure in Christ, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and will guard your mind through Christ Jesus. Four glorious graces. You privileged people are the only kind of people in this world who can know them because you know Christ.